This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Joel Hilliker. How close is the world to nuclear war? According to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, we are now just 90 seconds to midnight. They pushed the doomsday clock forward by 10 seconds last week, making it closer to the symbolic hour of global nuclear destruction than it has ever been. Because, in their view, the factors pushing us toward nuclear war are greater than ever. We'll begin today with a report from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about why we need to be alert to the doomsday threat. Next, we'll go to Egypt, whose economy is in serious trouble. Food shortages, a plummeting currency, and rising inflation are putting a lot of pressure on the government of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. This nation plays a pivotal role in end-time prophecy, and we at The Trumpet, we've pointed to prophesied upheaval in that country for many years. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic about this crisis and where it could lead. For our third segment, we go to Canada, where the activist Supreme Court is enacting far-reaching changes to society, legalizing cannabis and same-sex marriage, encouraging abortion and other leftist causes. Trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau will explain how Canada's most powerful judicial institution came to be this way and what it means for the nation's fate. For our last word, I'll talk about how easy it is to think that just around the corner after you finish this or that, things will get easier. I'll help you build a more helpful mindset in three simple words. We'll start now by looking at the looming threat of global nuclear war in this report from Jeremiah Jacques. The end of the world just got closer. The minute hand of the symbolic doomsday clock was pushed forward by 10 seconds on January 24th. And that brings the time to just 90 seconds until midnight. And midnight on this symbolic clock represents the hour of worldwide nuclear destruction. The clock was created by Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer and their associates back in 1947, 75 years ago. And it was created at a time just after atomic weapons had first been developed and used. And the clock's creators have used it ever since as a symbolic measurement of the likelihood that mankind will start nuclear war. And midnight, of course, represents zero hour, global destruction. The farthest from midnight that the clock has ever been set to was in 1991, just after the Cold War era ended. At that time, the experts who run the clock, called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, set it to 17 minutes to midnight. So that was deemed to have been a comparatively safe time. And then the nearest to zero that it had ever been, before the current era of rising tensions, was back in 1953, when the clock sat at two minutes to midnight. And that was just after the US and the Soviet Union had both tested thermonuclear devices. Then in 2018, the atomic scientists pushed the clock forward once again to two minutes till midnight. That was when North Korea's nuclear activity and missile tests were reaching a crisis point. 
And it was just as other global powers were discussing pulling out of various nuclear weapons agreements as well, and just growing more and more bellicose. Throughout 2018 and 2019, the clock remained at the 11.58 mark. And then in 2020, it was pushed forward to 100 seconds to midnight, and that's where it stayed for the next two years. But now the team behind this symbolic clock believes the threat is even more severe. They say the threat level is now worse than at any time during the Cold War. It is unprecedented. And they're sounding the alarm about just how close the world is to a nuclear World War III. John Mecklen, the editor-in-chief of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, wrote about the rising threat in a statement published last week, just as the hand was being pushed forward. He wrote, This year, the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists moves the hands of the doomsday clock forward, largely, though not exclusively, because of the mounting dangers of the war in Ukraine. The clock now stands at 90 seconds to midnight, the closest to global catastrophe it has ever been. And then a little further down, Mecklen continues writing, Russia's war on Ukraine has raised profound questions about how states interact, eroding norms of international conduct that underpin successful responses to a variety of global risks. And worst of all, Russia's thinly veiled threats to use nuclear weapons remind the world that escalation of the conflict by accident, intention, or miscalculation is a terrible risk. So Russia is the main reason why the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists think the world is closer now to the brink than ever before. But they also call quite a lot of attention to China. The Chinese leadership has been developing more and more advanced nuclear weapons and delivery systems for those weapons in recent years. And the Chinese have not shown a willingness to enter into arms control agreements. And it also looks like the size of their arsenal could be set to dramatically expand. And then on top of all of that, the Chinese are utterly opaque when it comes to letting the world know about their arsenals and the details of them. The Bulletin writes, China's considerable expansion of its nuclear capabilities is particularly troubling given its consistent refusal to consider measures to enhance transparency and predictability. The U.S. Defense Department claims Beijing may increase its arsenal fivefold by 2035 and could soon rival the nuclear capabilities of the United States and Russia with unpredictable consequences for stability. End quote. A five-fold increase in the number of nuclear weapons. That is a dramatic buildup that the Chinese appear to be in the midst of. And then another reason given for the decision to move the minute hand was nuclear North Korea. North Korea has been nuclear and erratic for many years, but lately the nation is becoming even more erratic and more bellicose. The bulletin statement says, North Korea has greatly stepped up its intermediate and longer-range missile testing. In late March, North Korea successfully launched an intercontinental ballistic missile for the first time since 2017. 
In the following months, it also launched numerous other ballistic missiles, most of short range. Perhaps most concerning, on October 4th, North Korea launched an intermediate-range ballistic missile over Japan. Meanwhile, U.S. officials contend that North Korea is preparing to conduct its seventh nuclear weapon test. End quote. Next on their list is another of the usual suspects, the always provocative Islamic Republic of Iran. The bulletin writes, Iran continues to increase its uranium enrichment capability, albeit under international safeguards outside the confines of the joint comprehensive plan of action that once restrained it. This positions Iran closer to nuclear weapons capability should it decide to cross that threshold. And instability in Iran, as well as Tehran's support for Russia's war against Ukraine, will complicate successful negotiations to keep Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons." End quote. The team behind the Doomsday Clock also pointed to Pakistan and India, calling attention to their modernization programs and the way both nations are expanding their warheads, delivery systems, and production of nuclear materials. So those were most of the nuclear weapons-related threats that they mentioned. And then the team also talked about rising tensions between nations, the proliferation of biological weapons, cyber attacks, torrents of disinformation that are bombarding the world, the increasing chance of an anti-satellite weapon being used, the rising potential for severe disease outbreak, weather problems that are destabilizing populations, and the list goes on. So nuclear weapons are by far the most menacing threat, but there's also a whole host of other dangers that are intensifying, and which in many cases are making it more likely that those nuclear weapons could be used. And in the view of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, it all adds up to mean that mankind is closer than we've ever been to midnight global catastrophe. Now, it's true that some of the bulletin's reasoning is ill-founded, but the fact is we do live in perilous times, and this is a symbol that reflects that peril. And this is a symbol that has been on the radar of Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry since at least the year 2002. At that time, the clock was set forward from nine minutes to midnight to seven minutes, and just after that move, Mr. Flurry wrote, quote, The world should have jolted out of sleep at the news, but no real alarm was sounded. The majority of the news media dismissed it, and many still slumber on as the world heads toward destruction. That was from an article Mr. Flurry wrote in the May 2002 Philadelphia Trumpet, and he goes on from there to explain that the reason why the move was so significant is because of what Bible prophecy says about a nuclear World War III. He then quoted the Bible passage recorded in Matthew 24, 21-22, which in the New Living Translation states, There will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it'll never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. So this scripture is describing a global war that could end all human life. And that couldn't have really happened before the nuclear age, because mankind just didn't have weapons that could wipe out all people. After quoting that Bible passage, Mr. Fleury said, 
This is talking about a time when the annihilation of all human life would be possible. This has everything to do with the doomsday clock. End quote. Mr. Fleury went on to explain that even though setting the doomsday clock forward points to dark times in the near term, it also indicates that the most hope-filled event in mankind's history is also very near. In Matthew 24, verse 22, just after it says that nuclear war at the end of this age will be so cataclysmic that it could wipe out all human life, it then gives us a key detail. It says, but it will be shortened. The nuclear war, the one that is now looming larger than ever on the horizon, will be interrupted. Before mankind detonates enough weapons to erase human life, that war will be divinely cut short. And just after that season of unprecedented death, an unprecedented season of peace and harmony between the nations will begin. Mr. Fleury continued, Seven minutes to nuclear annihilation really means seven minutes to the greatest possible news you could ever hear. It's all a sign that Jesus Christ is about to return to earth to stop mankind from destroying himself and to show the world how to have peace, happiness, and joy. End quote. So Mr. Fleury wrote that back when the doomsday clock was set to seven minutes to midnight. But now that it has been moved up so much further to just 90 seconds until zero hour, the urgency and the excitement about this is even more intense. To understand more about how near humanity is to an unprecedentedly destructive nuclear war, and to understand how and why the conflict will be interrupted before it can extinguish all human life, Order your free copy of Mr. Flurry's booklet, Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Is Egypt on the verge of another revolution? We'll get some answers in this report from Mihailo Zekic. The Egyptian desert is full of monuments from bygone civilizations showing what happens when society collapses. But the threat of society falling apart isn't restricted to Egypt's past. Current economic and geopolitical trends suggest that Egypt is headed for a very rocky 2023. Its economy is sinking, and it's sinking fast. The crisis started in February last year when Russia invaded Ukraine. Ukraine is one of the biggest exporters of grain worldwide. Egypt, meanwhile, is the world's biggest importer of grain. Because of the war, bread prices in 2022 in Egypt skyrocketed. Egypt has well over 100 million people, tens of millions of which are in poverty. 
and the Ukraine war is making the Egyptian government struggle to provide for needs as basic as food. Meanwhile, Russians and Ukrainians made up roughly a third of Egypt's tourists before February of last year. Egypt is heavily dependent on tourism. Tourism accounted for over 15% of Egypt's gross domestic product in 2018. But the flow of tourists from that part of Eastern Europe now has almost dried up. The chaos in Ukraine isn't the only circumstance hurting Egypt, however. Egypt's economy has never been the strongest. But new cracks surfaced last autumn. In October, Egyptian President Fatah Abdel al-Sisi secured a loan of $3 billion from the International Monetary Fund. This was the fourth time Egypt went to the IMF in six years. And these kinds of borrowing levels devalued the currency. The Egyptian pound fell to a record low on January 4th, 26.4 to the dollar. As recently as the start of last year, the pound traded for about 16 to the dollar. And the pound has only continued to struggle since January 4th. In a country where, as of last year, the poverty line was projected at 27.9%, this kind of inflation is catastrophic. This is what Vivian Yi, the New York Times Cairo correspondent, wrote on January 23rd. Quote, Grocery prices are stratospheric. Money is worth half of what it was a year ago. For many, eggs are now a luxury, and meat is off the table. For others, burdened with school fees and medical expenses, the middle-class lives they have worked doggedly to sustain are slipping beyond their grasp, end quote. Then there is the issue of backlog at ports. The Ukraine war made foreign investors quick to pull foreign currencies out of Egypt and into safer, more stable countries. Currencies like the United States dollar are needed for international trade transactions. The exodus of currencies like the dollar meant Egypt couldn't accept imports. Billions of dollars' worth of goods sat languishing in Egyptian ports for days because nobody had the currencies to claim them. The crisis has been somewhat alleviated as of January. But for such an import-heavy economy, any crisis like this has massive reverberations. The situation is getting so dire that some Egyptian lawmakers are contemplating even privatizing the Suez Canal. The Egyptian parliament debated this in December. Nothing substantial came of it, but that privatizing the Suez Canal is even up for consideration shows how desperate the situation is becoming. Cairo is also facing problems from the rest of the Arab world. Sisi is considered a moderate Arab leader, and that is why moderate Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have been bankrolling his government. Since Sisi took power in 2013, Riyadh and Abu Dhabi have invested billions of dollars into Egypt. But now, it looks like this foreign support is starting to dry up. Sisi admitted in November that Egypt's, quote, brothers and friends in the Gulf have developed a firm conviction 
that the Egyptian state will be unable to stand again on its own two feet. They also believe that the support they've provided to Egypt over a period of many years has created a culture of dependency, end quote. Without these wealthy backers, Egypt would fall into even deeper problems. With all this in mind, what are Sisi's spending priorities? Surprisingly, or perhaps not surprisingly, the Egyptian government is spending like mad on vanity projects. To escape the congestion of Cairo, Egypt is currently building a new capital city. Construction started on this so-called new administrative capital in 2015. It has so far cost well over $50 billion to construct and is still incomplete. Some of the capital's furnishings include the so-called Iconic Tower, Africa's largest building, the largest cathedral in the Middle East, and the Octagon, Egypt's new defense headquarters in a 189,000-square-meter complex. Apparently a pentagon didn't have enough sides. The city of Giza, meanwhile, is the construction site of the Grand Egyptian Museum, which will be the world's largest museum about a single civilization. It has so far cost almost $1 billion. There is something to be said for jump-starting the economy with large investment projects, but such lavish spending on unnecessarily grandiose plans will only add fuel to Egypt's economic fire. And it's pretty clear whom these vanity projects are meant for. Weeks after the Egyptian government incarcerated thousands of protesters in 2019, Sisi said in response to the demonstrations, So what if I have palaces? Where could these economic woes lead Egypt? A look back at Egypt's situation ten years ago gives a worrying indication. In 2011, Egyptian revolutionaries ousted longtime President Hosni Mubarak and turned Egypt into a democracy. But instead of taking Egypt down the direction of Western liberalism, they voted for radical Islamist Mohamed Morsi. Morsi was popular with the Egyptian people, but was quickly turning Egypt into an Islamist theocracy. Morsi's power grab didn't impress the conservative military establishment. They staged a coup against him in 2013 and replaced him with Sisi. They were able to get away with this because the Egyptian population had turned against Morsi, not because they were disillusioned with his radicalism, but because the economic change he promised never came. Sisi also promised change. But instead, Sisi's Egypt is a debt-ridden, poverty-sticking plutocracy where the leader is too preoccupied with building pharaonic monuments for himself. Dissatisfaction with the government got two presidents removed in recent memory. Could it claim a third? If Egypt were to have another coup or revolution, who would replace Sisi? And what direction would he take Egypt? The trumpet uses a prophecy in the book of Daniel to analyze Middle Eastern developments. 
Here is how it reads. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, and with horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries, and shall overflow and pass over. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he, the king of the north, shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. That was Daniel chapter 11, verses 40, 42, and 43. The prophecy dates to the time of the end, the time we're living in right now. The prophecy speaks of two power blocks, the king of the north and the king of the south. Trumpet editor-in-chief Cheryl Fleury has for decades identified the king of the north as a German-led united Europe. For the king of the south, he has pointed to radical Islam, led by the Islamic Republic of Iran. And you can read Mr. Fleury's free booklet, The King of the South, for more information on that. The king of the south, or Iran, is prophesied to push, make provocative moves against Europe, and Europe responds with a devastating counterattack. Notice that Daniel states the king of the north will also invade Egypt when it attacks the king of the south. The implication is that Egypt is allied with the king of the south or Iran. This is not the case today. The two countries have very different forms of government and have historical animosity towards each other. But that could change with another revolution. And for Egypt to be allied with the king of the south implies that Egypt itself will become Islamist once again. This is why you need to watch Egypt. To learn more, please read our Trends article on thetrumpet.com, Why the Trumpet Watches Iran Allying with Egypt. Thank you very much for that, Mihailo. So this prophesied alignment of Egypt with Iran really would change the political landscape of the Middle East. When that happens, what sort of ripple effects do you foresee in the region? Well, there are a number of, uh, as you say, ripple effects that would happen in the Middle East and in North Africa. Perhaps one of the most obvious ones would be regarding Egypt's neighbor to the west, Libya. Uh, Libya, of course, just recently recovered from a a civil war. It's, again, a part of the Arab world. used to be uh, infamous as one of the main leaders of Islam, or not Islamic, but um, Arab terrorism, shall we say, under uh, Muammar Gaddafi. But for the longest time, Libya hasn't, while it's been influential within within the Arab world, it hasn't been Islamist per se. Gaddafi himself even actually outlawed the Muslim Brotherhood, which was, again, the Egyptian organization that Mohamed Morsi led. So, uh, But the Muslim Brotherhood has had its tentacles within uh, Libya for a long time, and there's even, with the current government in Tripoli, there's even some uh, links, even if they may be tenuous, to the Muslim Brotherhood. So, again, Libya is just recovering from a civil war. Um, it's still pretty unstable. It, uh, it has a ceasefire between different uh, rival warring parties. Half the country is controlled by a warlord. Things could erupt there really fast. And if 
a powerful Egypt with its population of over 100 million with an Islamic gover- or Islamist government is right next door. You could see Islamists within Libya taking advantage of the situation, reaching out to their Egyptian uh, comrades and establishing terror links there. There's also, of course, Libya's... And, and Libya, yeah, Libya is the... Uh, it's actually included in the prophecy that you were talking about with respect to Egypt. Yes, uh, Daniel 11, uh, verse 43. In fact, uh, that verse mentions Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia, three African countries that we uh, look at for radical Islam to seep into. Ethiopia is a bit more of a complex uh, situation, and they also have uh, problems with the civil war in that country. It remains to be seen exactly how that prophecy will be fulfilled there. But Libya is literally right next door to Egypt, and is an Arab state. So there's connections, um, historical, ethnic, geographical with Egypt, uh, just there. So, and it's by far the weaker of the two states, more subject to foreign influence. So anything that happens in Egypt, especially of that scale would undoubtedly have some sort of ripples in, in, uh, Libya as well. The other, um, place to watch that would be interesting is Gaza. Um, of course, technically it, isn't a state, but Hamas, the terror group, has been running it as a de facto state um, for years now. And Hamas actually is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood itself. Uh, sometimes in Western media, especially, Hamas gets a, a, a reputation of being this uh, bloodthirsty, uh, all or nothing, we're going to annihilate Israel group, which they are, while the Muslim Brotherhood may have a bit more of a benign image. But they both stand for Islamization of society. They both have common roots. They are uh, cut from the same cloth, so to speak. And at this point, the government of Fatah Abdel al-Sisi, uh, the current Egyptian government, um, they're by no means good Democrats. They, um, <laughs> Egypt under him has a horrible ranking under Reporters Without Borders for persecution of journalists, for example. But at the same time, they're not Islamists, and they're not necessarily friends of Hamas. And while at the same time, they're one of the closer Arab states that has relations with Israel. They have a closer relationship with Israel than some of the other states. And for Israel itself, uh, Sisi is, they, they need to do all they can to keep Sisi in power. Uh, and Sisi being removed and an Islamist government taking over in Egypt would be a disaster for Israel. For one thing, Islamists in general don't like Israel, but also Hamas at this point, because it's sandwiched between Israel and Sisi's Egypt, they're isolated. In fact, if any, for example, infrastructure projects or humanitarian aid or anything like that needs to happen in Gaza, Israel will usually outsource that to Egypt because, well, Hamas likes Egypt more than they like Israel, but Israel also trusts, trusts Egypt. And if an, Israel, or if an Islamist government ever took power in Cairo, not only would Egypt all of a sudden turn hostile to Israel, but now you would see this isolated regime in Gaza getting a lifeline um, for supplies, for weapons, for connections with the outside world, economic development. Hamas, of course, um, its main goal is the destruction of the Jewish state, and if it would ever get a backer in Egypt that directly borders Gaza, that would change the whole security scenario in the Levant completely. Yeah, you could see essentially that uh, Islamist border uh, moving right up there, uh, right next to Israel, <clears throat> over a pretty significant part of uh, of Israel's territory, rather than being isolated, having that connection with uh, its larger 
neighbor to the south. Uh, it is interesting to uh, to consider these things and looking particularly at that prophecy in Daniel 11 uh, as the the links between Iran, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, that you could see this unfolding kind of as somewhat of a domino effect preceding the fulfillment of that prophecy, these nations impacting one another and following on in joining forces with Iran in the time uh, in the time ahead. We will watch for that. We've been talking with trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic about the economic and political instability in Egypt that could well f- forecast a major revolution taking place in that nation. He's written an article, Will Egypt Collapse?, that you can look for on thetrumpet.com. We really appreciate you talking with us, Mihailo. Thank you. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Many of the most radical shifts to the left in Canada have been put into place not by elected lawmakers or executives, but by the nation's most powerful court, as we will hear in this report from Abraham Blondeau. The Canada of today is radically different than one generation ago. While traveling throughout the country this past year, I noticed these changes firsthand. You can drive through any small town and come across a cannabis store. If you visit a big city, you will find homelessness and rampant drug problems, along with safe injection sites. Turn on the news and you will hear about multiple violent crimes each night. Homosexual pride flags fly from nearly every government and public building. And perhaps the most shocking, someone in your family ended their own life at the hands of a doctor. Does that sound like the country you grew up in? There is one common thread between all of these changes listed above. All of these were instigated by the Supreme Court of Canada. Elected officials that Canadians voted for did not enact these changes. A group of nine unelected judges have willed into law these massive social changes that have swept across the country. Tristan Hopper at the National Post wrote, quote, Canada's top court has been on an activist streak that has begun to profoundly affect Canadian daily life. End quote. One of the most underrated aspects is that all of these major constitutional decisions have been slanted to one side of the ideological spectrum. This has been a significant force pushing all of Canada to lean radically left. It is important to understand how the most powerful judicial institution in the country came to be this way, and what that means for the fate of Canada. Canada operates under the Westminster system of parliamentary democracy, yet the Canadian Constitution was an attempt to amalgamate the best of the English and American models. The big turning point in Canadian law came when Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau repatriated the Constitution from Great Britain in 1982. Canada had hence operated under the principle of parliamentary supremacy, in which whatever Parliament decides was law. Trudeau introduced the concept of judicial supremacy, which was a high court having final say over the law. Trudeau battled with the provincial premiers for days, mainly over this principle. Eventually, a compromise was reached. Trudeau would get his Charter of Rights and Freedoms, a new constitution, 
while the provinces got their notwithstanding clause, which allowed them to legally override a judicial ruling. The federal government has the same power. On paper, it seemed to work, but in practice, it has proven to be a trap. Supreme Court justices are appointed by the Prime Minister and stay in office until age 75. The legislator has no power to revoke a nomination. This automatically lends itself to the executive power building a coalition of judges in ideological alignment through appointment. The Supreme Court has no democratic oversight. This issue has been exacerbated since Canada has had virtually no political course correction since 1967. Starting with Pierre Trudeau, the federal government has traveled in the same far-left direction, whether liberal or conservative. The only exception was Stephen Harper, but by that time the court was entrenched as an ally of the liberal Laurentian elite who make up the political class in Canada. Whether politician or judge, most come from the same schools in Ontario and Quebec. The liberal Laurentian alliance between the federal government and the Supreme Court has been a highly successful vehicle for change. Policy Options wrote in 2003, quote, less obvious but no less true, is that the Supreme Court of Canada, like its American counterpart, is a part of the National Governing Coalition. It reflects and protects the coalition of interests that appointed its judges. Since the coming into force of Section 15 in 1985, the Dixon, Lamer, and McLaughlin courts have served as a partner of, not a check on, the Mulroney and Kirchian governments. As Trudeau anticipated, a judicial ally armed with a charter allows the feds to achieve indirectly through judicial fiat what they could not achieve directly, or at least not without unacceptable political costs. End quote. This is called constitutional checkmate. Either way, the radical left control the final say over the supreme law of the land. The underlying legal theory used by the Supreme Court provides more sunlight to the situation. Bruce Party at C2C Journal writes, quote, According to the Supreme Court of Canada, the meaning of the Constitution is not fixed by its text. Instead, the Constitution is a, quote, living tree, unquote, to be interpreted in accordance with changing social circumstances, end quote. This has given the Supreme Court the imagined authority to create new rights not written in the Constitution. Party continued, quote, The Supreme Court has read the Charter over its 40-year life largely through an ideological progressive lens, slowly transforming what was drafted as a roster of autonomy rights into a mandate for collective values, group rights, and priorities of the expansive managerial state. Stated bluntly, the court decides social policy. As former Supreme Court Justice Rosalie Abella put in a 2008 speech in Jerusalem, the Supreme Court is, in her words, the final adjudicator of which contested values in a society should triumph. And adjudicate values it has, end quote. Do you think nine unelected people should decide which values in Canadian society should triumph? The court's track record proves that the living tree has its roots in communism. Nearly every major decision in which a new right has been invented by the court has been radical left. This is not righteous judgment, but woke communist judicial activism. 
Here are some of the key decisions the Supreme Court has made. Reflect on how these have impacted your life. The first was euthanasia. In 2015, the court created the right of euthanasia in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The National Post wrote, quote, according to the court's ruling in R versus Carter, any competent adult who is suffering intolerably as a result of an irremediable condition now had the right to seek a doctor's help in killing themselves. Somewhat ironically, this new guarantee was found within the provisions of the charter right to, quote, life, liberty, and the security of the person, end quote. It was also the court that forced the legislator to expand euthanasia to include the mentally ill. The next change has been violent crime. A 2017 decision by the court has established that the default position of the law is that criminals must be released at the earliest reasonable opportunity. This created the catch and release problem across the country, where repeat offenders are back on the streets to commit more crimes. Another is gun crime. As violent crime has increased across the country, the court decided in 2015 that the mandatory three-year sentence for gun crime was cruel and unusual punishment. The decision was not based on the case in which a gang member tried to shoot a rival. The National Post writes, quote, Rather, the R versus NUR decision was based entirely on a hypothetical scenario in which a Crown prosecutor tried to seek a three-year prison term for a gun owner whose only crime was forgetting to renew their license. It didn't matter that the scenario had never happened before. The mere possibility that it could happen was enough for the court to strike mandatory minimum gun sentences from the criminal code on the grounds that they were a grossly disproportionate application of justice. Another major change has been drug use. Homelessness and overdose deaths are at a record high in Canada, mainly due to the focus on harm reduction and not getting rid of the drugs. The genesis of this direction came from a 2011 court decision that allowed provinces to open safe injection sites and that the drug laws did not apply within the laws of the building. The National Post continues, quote, the Supreme Court stated that opening facilities, which actively functioned as neighborhood hubs for illicit drug use, would have no impact whatsoever on community safety. The court decision said, There is little or no evidence that safe injection sites will have a, a negative impact on the public safety. The National Post wrote, Another selection writes that safe injection has yielded no discernible negative impact on the public safety and health objectives of Canada, end quote. Go to any community in Canada with a safe injection site and see for yourself if that is true. And the last is cannabis. While the Supreme Court has ruled that the federal government holds the power to criminalize cannabis, it was a 2015 case where the court expanded the definition of medical cannabis to include oils, teas, brownies, or any other kind of, of form. This helped pave the way for legalizing the drug in 2018 via legislation. Now that all of these drastic social policies are in place, it becomes very difficult to reverse course. But that was a plan from the very beginning. The hard fact Canadians need to realize is that the Constitution does not protect you from tyranny, but rather enables it. When the senior Trudeau repatriated the Constitution and created the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, 
it represented the beginning of a slow-rolling revolution. Party continues at C2C Journal, quote, Relying on the Charter to protect individual liberty is a mistake. The document is not equipped to hold back a dominant state integrated into every aspect of modern life, or a judiciary inclined to endorse that dominance. In retrospect, the Charter seems almost naive written as though such a thing could not come to pass, end quote. The charter was deliberately written to allow an abusive government, an abusive Supreme Court, and an alliance between the two. How can you know the motive and agenda behind these events? Bible prophecy. The late Herbert W. Armstrong warned for decades that the Western nations were under attack from a communist infiltration. It wasn't a hot war, but an ideological war, where communist believers entered the country and eventually gained control over key institutions, the most important being the educational system. There is a reason why Canada has been walking down the well-trodden path toward communism since the 1960s. There is a reason why nearly all of Canada's politicians, lawyers, and judges are called the Laurentian elite, educated at the same schools in Ontario and Quebec. There is a reason why all of these elites think the same way and endorse radical social changes and expansive government. The communist infiltration was highly effective, so much so that the constitution was written by a communist, Pierre Trudeau. Now the most powerful offices in the land are all aligned to reshape the country. You can read more about the communist infiltration in our free book, He Was Right. But this is why your town, your community, your life has changed. This is why Canada has drifted so far left over the past few generations. 2 Kings 14 verses 25 through 27 says it would get to the point where Canada as a nation would become almost blotted out. That is the real agenda of the Supreme Court and radical left government of Canada. They want to blot out Canada as it was and reshape it into something new, something driven by their ideological agenda of communism. Yet the Bible says God will save the United States, Canada, and the British Commonwealth one more time. If you're troubled by what is going on in your country, then you can take action. But it is not by protesting or voting that you can make a difference. It is by repenting towards God. That is the only way to fight back against this communist infiltration. To find out more about what you can do right now, about how you can fight back against what's going on in your community, please read our books, The United States and Britain in Prophecy, and America Under Attack. It's time for today's Last Word. For quite a while in my life, I had a tendency to always look forward to when things will get easier. Maybe you have this tendency. As soon as I finish this project, then things will get easier. After the recital or after that big presentation, things will get easier. Once we wrap up remodeling the bathroom, things will get easier. 
After I get that promotion or once I retire, then things will get easier. If I can just make it past this deadline, if I can just reach that goal or hit that benchmark or pass this milestone, things will get easier. The reality is life doesn't work like that. Things never get easier. We need to adjust our thinking to get it more in line with God's thinking. I want to share with you a short talk by Kara Lawson, head coach of Duke University's women's basketball team. She's a WNBA champion, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, both as a player and a coach. She said this. It will never get easier. What happens is you handle hard better. That's what happens. Most people think that it's going to get easier. Life is gonna get easier. Basketball is going to get easier. School is going to get easier. It never gets easier. What happens is you become someone that handles hard stuff better. So that's a mental shift that has to occur in each of your brains. It has to. Because if you go around waiting for stuff to get easier in life, it's never going to happen. And then what happens? Oh, it's so hard. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, this, I don't know. When, it, when is it going to be easy for me? Oh, it's easy for other people. It's not. It's hard. And the second we see you handling stuff, handling hard better, what are we gonna do? We're gonna make it harder. We're gonna make it harder. Because we're preparing for you for when you leave here. Not just basketball and life. And if you think life when you leave college is gonna be all of a sudden get easy because you graduated and you got a degree, it's not gonna get easier. It's gonna get harder. So make yourself a person that handles hard well. Not someone that's waiting for the easy. Because if you have a meaningful pursuit in life, it will never be easy. If you're trying to win a championship, if you're trying to have a family, ask your parents. Do you think it was ever easy for them to raise kids? Karen, is it easy? It's not. Any meaningful pursuit in life, if you want to be successful at it, it goes goes to the people that handle hard well. Those are the people that get the stuff they want. People that wait around for easy, you probably see them at the bus stop. They're waiting for easy, the easy bus to come around. Easy bus never comes around. You've got to handle hard. Okay, so don't get discouraged through this time. If it's hard, don't get discouraged. It's supposed to be. And don't wait for it to be easy. Oh, I just got to get through the summer. And then it'll all of a sudden get easy in the fall. No, it won't. It won't. It won't get easy in the fall. So make yourself someone that handles hard well. And then whatever comes at you, you're going to be great. You're going to be great, okay? That is actually a very godly way to think. It's very consistent with what God is trying to build in us. The Apostle Paul wrote the epistle of 2 Timothy from prison, and he knew he was about to die. His attitude in these circumstances was most inspiring. Now, Timothy was shaken by Paul being in prison, and he was afraid, and he was even ashamed. 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 to 8, Paul says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not you, therefore, ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be you partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. So 
he's telling this young man, this isn't going to be easy. Doing God's work will involve affliction. Paul suffered to do God's work. You can read in 2 Corinthians 11 where he says that he suffered 39 stripes. He was beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked. He went through dangerous journeys and perils of weariness and pain, hunger, thirst, cold, nakedness. He had a rough life. God put this man through a lot. And Paul says to Timothy, this is the way it is. This is the life we're called to. God intends your life to be difficult. We're not called to a life of snuggling in our comfort zone. We're called to a life of struggle and battling and overcoming and conquering. A life of doing what needs to be done for the work of God and the family of God. In the second chapter of this letter to Timothy, he said, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is manly, fatherly advice. Don't be weak. Be strong. Verse 3 says, Therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In other words, make yourself a person that handles hard well. Those problems and challenges and afflictions that life throws at us, we need those. God wants us to embrace the struggle. And when we do, and we learn to rely on him, then he can develop his character in us. God has big plans for us. He has big challenges ahead, exciting challenges, and we have to grow to be able to handle those. And he's leading us there to that future, step by step by step. Remember, if you have a meaningful pursuit in life, it will never be easy. And there's nothing more meaningful than the calling that God is offering to us. So learn to see whatever challenge you face today as preparation for greater challenge. Not something to run away from, but something to handle well. Jim Rohn said, don't wish it were easier, wish you were better. Things don't get easier, but we need to become better equipped to deal with them. So make yourself a person that handles hard well. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Jeremiah Jacques, Mihailo Zekic, and Abraham Blondeau. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Thomas Jefferson. Democracy will cease to exist when you take away from those who are willing to work and give to those who are not. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.